Hi there, and welcome to Inside Quantum, the podcast telling the human stories behind the latest developments in quantum technologies. I'm Dr. Stephen Thompson, and as usual, I'll be your host for this episode. In previous episodes, we've talked about the details of various aspects of quantum technologies. We've talked about the algorithms that will perform quantum computing operations and discussed the hardware that quantum computers will be built from. But for quantum computers to really take off, we need more than that. We need not just the hardware and the software, but also the infrastructure and the surrounding ecosystems. Today's guest is playing a key role in creating this ecosystem. It's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Alba Cervera Lierta, a senior researcher at the Barcelona Supercomputing Sector and coordinator of the Quantum Spain project. Alba, thank you so much for joining us here today. Hello, Stephen. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. So before we get on to discussing your role in the Quantum Spain project, let's first talk about your journey to this point and let's go right back to the very beginning. What was it that first got you interested in quantum physics? So I decided that I wanted to pursue a physics uh, career, a physics bachelor, but because I was a... Um, I was interested in uh, in astrophysics, in particle physics, this this type of of physics uh, fields, let's say. But then, uh, at the middle of my of my bachelor, there was a subject in quantum information. So I was curious and attracted to that because I didn't know what does that mean, and and it was it felt interesting. So I just start, I just took that course, and since then, I just basically fell in love with quantum information. And I decided that I really wanted to pursue a career in this field. And in particular, in, uh, anything related with quantum mechanics was, uh, was interesting for me. So to me, it was like a kind of nice way to implement the quantum mechanical principles for something uh, that, uh, that has a real application, especially something that is developing so much in the recent years. So you already knew very early on then in your bachelor's, this is something that you wanted to do for a career, not just for a few more years of study, but something you really wanted to to work on for a long period of time. Yeah, actually the story, it's, it's, uh, it's the following. So I was the first generation of the Bologna plan, which is, it was a change in the European plans uh, at that time. It was, I think, 2009, 2008, so more or less. So I was the first generation that took that plan and this subject appears from nowhere. So it didn't exist before. So that's why I, I took that and it was, we were like only seven people at that, at that time. Now it's more than 50 people and there is not enough spaces for everyone that wants to take that course. So before that, I didn't know that this existed in the first place. But then once I discovered that, I just found that that was something completely different uh, as I was expecting in a physics career. And I, and I thought, and I thought that that was a great opportunity to try something different. But at that time, quantum information and in particular computation was not as trendy as today. Mm -hmm. So when I finished my degree, I, I took a, a master's in, in particle physics, not in quantum information, but I was still thinking about quantum information. So that's why it was during my PhD that I started to specialize more in quantum computing and information. But it was just a coincidence that there were a, there was a professor working on that in my university, but uh, there were no masters at the time or a very few of them and no subjects. There were no pieces of news uh, that talk about quantum computing. There were no podcasts like this one. So it was really, really at the beginning of all this hype. So what made you decide to do that for your PhD rather than continuing with particle physics? Was it just something that had 
captured your imagination and wouldn't let go? Or was there some more practical reason that you thought perhaps a career in this might be more, more stable, more interesting, something like that? Oh, definitely it was not because I was thinking that that was more stable than any other thing, because to me, it was a super new field. I didn't know that it existed. And until I was in the middle of my PhD, I just realized that this field comes from the 70s and, and, and before that. So it was an old field, but there were not this such a hype, like the hype that we are uh, witnessing these days. So there were, it was not as trendy in that sense. So it really took that because I feel that that was interesting that Quantum information in the end is, is a so broad and big field that has not only applications, but in the end, concept, conceptually speaking, is a different way of treat with information. And, and that was very interesting. I didn't know that was possible to manipulate uh, quantum mechanical systems at the individual level to transmit information, to compute in a completely different way. And, and that, that felt uh, really, you know, novel, attractive to me. And it didn't seem that it was possible at all until, you know, the recent years. But when I started, it seems more, um, you know, mathematical, uh, physical theories that were interesting and that, that, that was all. So I'm really happy that I took that because now we are witnessing a really big expansion and revolution with all of this. Yeah, I think you certainly got into the field at the right time, given the, as you say, all the all the hype that we're seeing at the moment and the kind of rapid expansion of quantum information in so many different directions. Yeah, definitely. So it was um, perfect timing. <laughs> yeah. If you hadn't gone down this route, then what would you have done instead? I'm not sure. Um, what, something that it was clear in my mind is to pursue a PhD. I didn't care about which field in particular. I, I like all physics uh, fields, to be honest, but uh, I really wanted to do a PhD. So probably in particle physics or related subjects, because I really like particle physics even nowadays. So even if I don't work on that actively, I'm still, I still like it. So probably, yeah, PhD in particle physics or similar. So at the moment then, you're uh, a senior researcher working in the field of quantum information. Can you tell us a bit about what's the, the big picture goal of of your field and your work in particular? How does your work fit into this bigger picture? So as I was saying, when I started working in, in quantum information and, and computation, there was you know, very little use of this technology. So of course, there is a lot of theory done. There was a lot of experiments going on in labs, but uh, there was not such a... Um, you know, relationship between theory and experiments beyond, you know, particular collaborations. So when I, at the middle of my, of my PhD, it was announced by IBM that a quantum computer uh, was in the cloud, will be in the cloud, so everybody can, can use it. And that changed completely the, the, the way that I was thinking about this field. And I think that it also happened with other people. And that make a big revolution in that sense. Because that means that quantum computers uh, made the jump from an experimental setup to something that can be operational, to something that people from other fields can use without needing to have uh, access to a, to a lab, right? So uh, to me, this is uh, just the beginning of what's going on in this field. So this field was developed in the 90s, 80s, 90s. At the beginning of 2000, we start having the first big experiments, but still everything very experimental, very uh, primordial in labs. And now it's making a huge, huge step towards operation to become operational, towards uh, becoming uh, and developing these infrastructures, because now the technology is ready for this next level. So in that sense, this is the, precisely the 
the field of what I'm working on. So on one side, as a researcher, I'm working in near-term quantum algorithms, which means everything that can be run in current-term quantum computers, which unfortunately is not all kind of algorithms, but there are many things that we can do and try. And on the other side, also helping to develop the infrastructure necessary to boost all this ecosystem. So in the end, uh, I'm working in a supercomputing center, and something that is happening in 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 this uh, HPC community, high performance computing community, is until very recently, um, they were not investing in quantum computers because uh, we already have the supercomputers. There is a lot of things to do with supercomputers, and they were working in this level of development, the level of offering all the infrastructure to the users to use the machine for different applications. And quantum computers were not there yet. But this is changing. So quantum computers now are ready for that. And that, that's why it's, uh, it has perfect sense that these supercomputing centers start acquiring these quantum computers and opening them to the public, to the users, in the same way as it's happening with supercomputers. So in that sense, I'm, I'm coordinating a project that is trying to do this thing for for. Uh, in the particular ecosystem of Spain, but also Europe, because very recently, two weeks before uh, we are speaking right now, it was awarded as the first six European quantum computers in Europe. Hmm. And one of them will be in Spain together with these other super uh, quantum computers, sorry, from this quantum Spain project. So we will have oh. two quantum computers in our center. And this, as I was saying, this has perfect sense in a supercomputing centers because we are the ones who acquire the technology and offer that to the users, while universities and, uh, and, other, and also industry, of course, develop the technology. And once it's ready, they sell that to us. It's a really interesting position to be in because, as I say, we've spoken in previous episodes to people working on the, the theory of quantum computers. We've spoken to a few experimenters working in labs, working with technology that could be used in computers. And we've spoken to people working in, in companies as well who are trying to to sort of um, you know sell the applications of quantum computers. But we've never spoken yet to someone who's in this kind of middle realm of making them available to people, which I guess is the is the really important part. If no one can use a quantum computer, then they may as well not exist. So that's a really interesting place to be. So the current quantum computers are all quite small. You mentioned the IBM systems. I think they have, what is it, between five and seven qubits for the publicly available ones. Uh, are the mm-hmm. computers that you're looking to have in your supercomputing center, will they be comparable to this or will they be somewhat larger? So first of all, the idea is different from uh, what, for instance, what a company like IBM is trying to, to do, because in the end, any company that develops this technology, their goal is also to sell this technology and to improve it on one side, because if you want to sell good quantum computers, first you need to develop them. Mm-hmm. In our case, we are acquiring whatever is in the market and put that uh, as a public service, because we are a public institution, I offer that to the users for free in that sense. Mm-hmm. So we expect to have different kind of devices. Uh, it will depend. So we are now under a public procurement process. I'm not sure maybe with this is uh, on air, maybe it's already announced what are what will be the company that will install this quantum computer. But the idea is to start with a very small um, chips, so probably five qubits or so. And the idea is to start testing them because it's not about only using these five qubits, which is something that is still, I mean, current state of the art or even very simple state of the art. Mm -hmm. It's about how to operate these five qubits in a sense that we need to decide how are we offering this service? uh, How are we prioritizing the, 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 
the jobs that people are sending to us. How are we uh, connecting this device with our supercomputer? Even though it's a proof of concept thing, because five qubits is a very simple experiment, we need to set up all the infrastructure and all the workflows necessary to operate the quantum computer together with the supercomputer. Because that's how uh, is this field evolving in the supercomputer, in the supercomputing point of view, which is how to operate these two kinds of computational paradigms all together. And for that, you need to develop a lot of of, of workshop, uh, task managers, uh, and also some theory from computer science perspective of how to do that in practice. So uh, that's why we will start with the small devices. But the idea is uh, our project will take three years and we will have uh, an upgrade in the chip every six months. So we are taking the superconducting circuits technology. And the idea is we will install the dilution fridge and all the necessary uh, equipment um, to control the, the, the quantum chips, but uh, we will have an upgrade every six months with a bigger chip with bigger capabilities. That means more qubits, better coherence times, uh, less crosstalk, etc. So the idea is end up the, the this project, this quantum spin project, probably in um, 20 qubits or more. Uh, even though there are still not 100 qubits as some other companies, the, our goal is uh, start playing with this technology incorporate that into our infrastructures to be prepared for the future quantum computers. So we are not the ones, as I was saying, who develop the technology, but the ones who operate that. So we will, you know, be a, be ready and prepared to host any quantum computer in, in the future. I see. So you're creating the, the blueprint, I guess, for how to make these available. And I guess this is, you say you can build on it and, and get bigger and bigger chips in the future, but I guess also other sort of supercomputing centers and other institutes can then sort of borrow the techniques that you're developing and the procedures that you're developing to also make quantum computers more available to to researchers and companies and the public and so on. So in a sense, you're you're establishing the the way that this will will go out into the world and become a useful tool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and let me add that we are not, of course, the only ones that are trying to do this thing. Actually, we, uh, so the idea is uh, we are not competing against other supercomputing centers or not against any company, of course. So the idea is we take our role as a, as a operational infrastructure, let's say, to put this uh, at the level of, of a public service. But uh, it's not clear how to do that, of course. I mean, it's it's a very it's very challenging how to operate a quantum computer in a in a very you know efficient way mm -hmm. because it's not an experiment that I run a particular quantum circuit and that's it. I mean, I need to receive quantum circuits all the times, operate that, and this is obviously hard. And on top of that, we need to design all of this from a really high level. So the user doesn't care if there is a superconducting circuit quantum computer or a trap ion quantum computer or any other kind of technology. So that's why uh, we really need to collaborate with other centers that are also trying to do this, uh, this kind of uh, effort. And that's why this, uh, this uh, EuroHPC uh, joint undertaking call, which is the, the recent call that was awarded another quantum computer for Barcelona and also other places in Europe, uh, our idea with this call was to collaborate between all the centers that were awarded with this uh, with this uh, quantum computer to uh, share uh, our methodologies, to share our technology, because in the end we will have only one of them. But the idea is uh, our software will also be compatible with other quantum computers and the other way around. So just to exchange what is the best way to to host these these kind of devices and uh, and, and share technology in the end. Okay, I see. So you mentioned there are a couple of different challenges involved in in realizing this goal. 
Is there any particular challenge that is the the biggest obstacle or is it a case of a lot of small problems that all need to be solved in order for this to work? So I would say most of the challenges I'm sure will appear once we have the quantum computer on site and have to operate that because the main difference that I can identify uh, with respect to, you know, any user that goes to IBM or to any other company that offers this service in the cloud mm -hmm. is it's not the same using a quantum computer in the cloud than having you, a quantum computer, in your center, in your facility and having to operate that because mm -hmm. that means you need to calibrate it. You need to uh, deal with any possible uh, you know, problem that uh, occurs with the machine or with the infrastructure in general or with your server or with many other things. And this is really hard and not many people or companies have been able to do that. So I think it's also uh, the testimony of what happens when you move from the lab to this kind of infrastructure that if you can do that, that, if you can do this jump, that means that the technology was ready. So it was ready to go to this ne next level of TLR or, or similar, because that means that it can be operated by people that are not uh, experimental, you know, physicists working on the machine. And I'm sure that uh, although we have a plan, of course, to deal with that, uh, most of the problems and challenges will appear once we have the quantum computer on site. And I would say that uh, besides, of course, the obvious uh, challenges of make, mm, keeping the, the device calibrated all the time and also managing all the jobs in order, you know, to gain access to, to a recently calibrated device uh, as soon as possible to, to a particular user and so on and so forth. I think that also the, all the workflows that we currently use for uh, high performance computing uh, are completely different and they don't think about, uh, you know, quantum computing in any of these, of their parts. So adapting these workflows so I can run an algorithm both in a GPU, in a CPU and in a QPU will be a very challenging uh, thing, but at the same time, very exciting because we are make, mixing all kinds of technologies. Hmm, I see. So um, let's talk maybe a little bit about your research work. So one of your research interests is what we can do with computers in what's called the noisy intermediate scale quantum era, the NISC era. We've talked a little bit about this on some previous episodes, but for anyone who missed it, could you maybe give us a brief summary of what, what the NISC era means and what the current challenges actually are? Yes. So NISC era stands for noisy intermediate scale quantum computers. And this is because current term quantum computers, first of all, they are small in a sense that they are form of a few qubits. That's why it's intermediate scale, because we don't have thousands of qubits. We only have uh, 50 or as much, maybe 100 in the recent years, but very few of them. And then noisy because they are not perfect. They don't operate in a perfect regime, in a fault tolerant regime that we say. And this because the qubits, uh, of course, they are affected by noise. They are affected by the environment, by radiation, by different sources of noise. The fabrication procedure is not perfect uh, also. So that means that every time that I want to run a particular quantum circuit, uh, the result is not the one that I was expecting because this noise. So that's why they, they call them uh, noisy in uh, and uh, in the future, once we have enough qubits, we will have quantum error correction, which means that I transform these no noisy qubits into logical qubits. So fault tolerance, and then I can run any possible algorithm. And the idea of NISC is, okay, we don't have perfect quantum computers. We don't have big quantum computers, but can we do something interesting with this kind of devices? Because in the end, we are still controlling uh, quantum mechanically uh, individual uh, atoms or individual circuits. So it's uh, still pretty awesome, that, that kind of things that we can do. 
And the answer that uh, most of us believe is yes, we still there is still room to some improvement and some quantum advantage within this uh, NISC regime, although it's still to be studied until which extent uh, noisy intermediate scale quantum computers present any quantum advantage because supercomputers are really, really hard to beat, as you mm. can imagine. Uh, but, uh, but there are still some proposals. And the most interesting proposals are precisely the ones that try to mix the best of the two worlds. So trying to run part of the circuit or part of the algorithm in a quantum uh, computer and part of the algorithm in an HPC or in a classical computer in general. So it's really interesting to see how can we combine techniques from different kinds of computation in order to extract the most from our quantum computer. That's really interesting. Um, can you give us any examples of, of the type of problem you could solve in this kind of hybrid way with a part classical and part quantum algorithm? Yes, there are many examples. I will, I will say that probably the, the, I mean, the first one that was proposed was uh, the so-called variational quantum eigensolver. And the idea is uh, quantum simulation in the end. So to understand what's going on in the microscopical level, so in the quantum mechanical level, at some point we will need quantum computers because simulating quantum systems is exponentially hard with a classical computer. And that's mm -hmm. why we are doing all of this in the end, or one of the main reasons. So the idea of this uh, variational circuits, variational quantum eigensolver, is to compute the, some properties of a quantum system, to simulate the quantum system in our quantum computer, and to compute some of these of its properties uh, using this hybrid uh, approach. And in particular, for uh, it was applied for chemistry, so to obtain the ground state energy of a molecule. And this is interesting and this is important because these uh, energies, these ground state energies are closely related with activation uh, energies of molecules. So it means if I will have uh, this reaction or not. And this, of course, have many consequences in chemistry. And that goes from uh, very basic chemi quantum chemistry to development of, of, of materials or, or, re or new reactions or new components, etc. And this is uh, very simple, apparently, I mean, Computationally speaking, maybe not so complicated process, but still it requires a lot of effort from a computational perspective of how can I encode the biggest molecule possible in my quantum circuit? Mm -hmm. How can I extract the most from the classical part of the simulation to obtain the best uh, parameters of this circuit and so on? And this is one of the main applications that people believe that, uh, that NIST devices will be useful for is uh, quantum chemistry. And this is just one example because in the, you can use exactly the same uh, way of thinking, but um, replacing the molecule model by a quantum machine learning model. And you are trying to obtain the, some uh, minimum of some cost function that gives you the result of your quantum machine, uh, of your machine learning model. And that has, as you can imagine, many applications from scheduling uh, to, to solve classification problems or to obtain some knowledge from some uh, quantum circuit, uh, system or material and so on and so forth. And these are just two of the uh, applications that people think about, but there are many, many more. Yeah, it's definitely a really exciting time. I think from my side, the, the quantum simulation aspects of what we can do with these systems is really is really fascinating because as you say, the larger the system becomes, the more difficult it becomes to simulate classically. And then at a certain point, a certain very small point, right? It's around about what, 20 to 24 qubits. At that point, you can no longer solve these things exactly on a, on a classical computer. And uh, it's kind of mind blowing. You know, we talk about these things scaling exponentially with system size, but when you actually try and run it yourself and you see the memory requirement of 19 qubits, 20, 21, 
<laughs> you know, we we know it's exponential, but for some reason it wasn't until I really tried to run these things myself and I saw how big the memory cost gets, how fast that I really, I understood what exponential actually meant. <laughs> yeah, it gets really, really bad. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, also these, all these uh, classical computational uh, scientists, they are improving their methods uh, because all this push from quantum computers. So I guess that they don't want to accept that uh, quantum computers are so close and they, and in reaction to that, they improve their methods, which is amazing because that means that there is still a lot of room to, of improvements in, in supercomputation. So it's, it's very exciting to see, you know, different ways of thinking, how they combine in order to extract the most. And also, uh, I mean, um, fairly speaking, um, fight against each other and see who uh, is the one who run the biggest simulation. Yeah, as someone who's not directly involved with this, I've been finding it really interesting to see these papers coming out on, on Archive where you have some quantum computer achieves some new record and then one week later someone manages to beat yeah, it on a exactly. classical machine and then they both kind of leapfrog each other for a little while. It's As you say, it's been really interesting to see how classical algorithms have have been forced to improve by the, the dawn of these new quantum machines as well. Yeah, definitely. So one of the other things that uh, you mentioned on your website as one of your research interests is high dimensional quantum computation. Can you tell us a bit about what that means and what it's useful for? Yes. So um, when we talk about quantum computing, uh, we normally use the term qubits, which are the main blocks of the quantum information. But qubits are actually the main blocks of binary quantum information. So that means that our quantum state, uh, each of these qubits can be in two of quantum states, the zero or the one. Mm -hmm. But uh, quantum mechanical systems are naturally high dimensional in a sense that there are more levels. It's not only the zero and one. There is all other energy levels. There are other possible configurations that you can call two, three, four, five, and so on and so forth. So the idea of high dimensional quantum computation is precisely using these, uh, these other levels to perform also uh, quantum algorithms and, and computation and also deal with the information in the end. And this is curious because traditionally, uh, classical computation uh, has always been developed in the binary regime because uh, I guess it was easier to build a transistor and, uh, in a binary level. Mm -hmm. Although there exist ternary quantum, uh, sorry, ternary classical computers that were built. I think it was in, uh, in, uh, during the seventies or so. At some point they become deprecated because uh, everybody just fall for the binary ones. But this is still a universal model of computation. So nothing prevents you theoretically to, to do that. But in quantum, it seems like more easier in a sense that I already have a device that has all these levels. Actually, I have to fight in order to not use these other levels because it's easy to you excite the qubits to these other levels and you don't want that and so on. So the idea of this high dimensional quantum computing is to adapt, in my case, uh, to try to adapt and extract the most, let's say, of uh, of each qubit, so d-dimensional uh, uh, system, to perform computation. And of course, you will not gain any exponential advantage of that if you compare that with qubits, but it's a matter of a prefactor. So instead of storing your information in a two to the power of whatever um, space, you are storing your information in a some number like three, four, five to the power of that. So this prefactor at long term, I guess that it will not be super important because if we have millions of qubits, we don't need that. But at short terms, especially that we uh, we can only deal with a few qubits so, or a few qubits, I think that will be important. So it could be a, a nice way to explore another path in order to extract the most from this exponentially hard and uh, big, sorry, anyway, uh, 
space. And at the same time, from a quantum information perspective, um, there is a lot of interesting properties that arise from high dimensional entanglement. And who knows, maybe there is one of these properties is important for quantum computation and we don't know that yet. So uh, I will also be interested in exploring this path. Okay, so we've already discussed a bit about the the Quantum Spain project and some of the the large-scale goals. Can you tell us a little bit about your role in coordinating this project and what is it you do on a daily basis and are there any lessons that you've learned in managing a project like this? Well, uh, managing Quantum Spain has been like a big challenge in my career for, I mean, for obvious reasons, because it's a big project, of course, but on the other side, because I need to to face the other part of of science, which is not doing science itself, but uh, actually, you know, dealing with a project, managing a group of people, also, you know, uh, putting everything into perspective. So to see, you know, what is, what will be the goals of this project? What is the progress of this project? And many bureaucracies, you can imagine. This is something important to learn because um, we are funded by uh, by public funds. And it's really important to explain to everybody what are we doing, uh, what are we doing, why are we doing this, and what is our progress. So this is something that you have to take into account with your coordinating a, a project. So in this sense, uh, Quantum Spin has been uh, a really nice and, uh, and also challenging um, path and, and project. I'm really happy that the government of Spain uh, decided to 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 beat to with quantum computing. Because actually we were funded by the, the Ministry of Economic Affairs and not the Ministry of Science. So Ministry of Science is the developing other many interesting projects in quantum uh, technologies. But the particular one of quantum computation, Quantum Spain, it's funded by this other ministry because they wanted the, to see this jump from the academia to industry to startups to offer this service to everyone that needs that. And it's uh, really nice that they see the opportunity to do that. And they saw, they have this view of saying, okay, now it's time to do this thing. And, uh, and, uh, and this is, uh, that has been a very exciting. And at the same time, I'm coordinating, uh, 27 institutions. At the moment, we are still 13, but, uh, it's expected that other 14 will join shortly. And it's really nice to see, you know, different groups, how they work, uh, what are the objectives, what are their uh, infrastructures, because this is a project that goes to the full uh, Spanish supercomputing network. So you can see other kinds of supercomputing infrastructures in Spain. And it's really nice that it's organized in a network manner. So it's everybody is in quantum Spain right now and everybody's trying to have uh, to make this work. Uh, because we understand this as an effort, uh, as a country effort to to put uh, our technology at the front level. And uh, this is very exciting. So my role, uh, let's say day by day, is basically answering a lot of emails and uh, and also, you know, having several meetings to see the progress in in this project. But I'm also, uh, that was particular the, at the beginning, but now that I have more time, that the project is still ongoing uh, after one year, I'm more focused on the research part because my, my role is double. So I, I'm coordinated, but I'm also doing research. So I'm also, I also have the opportunity to work together with, uh, with my group here at BSC in, in, you know, in quantum algorithms. So something more technical. Wow. So yeah, you're really coordinating a huge number of institutes and I guess also a huge number of people, presumably also. Yeah, but to be honest, I'm not doing that alone, of course. So, mm. so something that I also learned very quickly is how important it is to make a team of 
uh, of managing uh, of managers. So not only a coordinator, you also need a project manager, you need a dissemination officer, you need other uh, coordinators of each of the packages of the project because quantum spin goes beyond having the, the quantum computer. So we will acquire the quantum computer, we will operate that, but we are also doing research for that. I, uh, there are some people that are coordinating all these research efforts in many projects, sub-projects. Then we are also um, training a full generation of scientists. So our goal is also to provide material and also training to everybody that, that wants to learn more about quantum computing. And not only from a physical perspective, but especially from other backgrounds like computer mm -hmm. scientists or, or, or chemists or any, uh, any person that is in, in interested in using this technology. So, of course, for coordinating all of this, you need a lot of people around you that, uh, that will take, you know, some subcoordination of, of any, of every of these packages. So that's, it's also nice to see. Especially uh, how everybody is trying to do their best. Uh, so you can see there is uh, excitement with these uh, kind of projects in, in quantum technology because everybody sees that this is the future. This is a kind of revolution or maybe evolution of, of computation and everybody wants to put their part in, in that. So I guess on the subject then of putting together very large teams with people from different backgrounds and different expertise and so on, there is one question that I always like to ask every guest on this podcast, and that's that physics has historically been a field that has been dominated mainly by white cisgender men for a very, very long time. It feels like things are beginning to change, albeit too slowly, but it seems like some change is beginning to happen. So I'd like to ask, during your career, having worked in several different countries, have you seen attitudes towards diversity changing at all, either over the years or between the different countries you've worked in? And from your point of view now, as someone who's involved in coordinating a project, do you see that that you are uh, establishing a, a very diverse team of people? So the, all these problems with the, the lack of diversity in, especially in physics in general, in computer scientists also, of course, in quantum computing, uh, much more. So as you go uh, um, smaller and smaller in the subfields, it becomes more and more complicated. But the, the problem that I see is uh, we need years to change that. And we need to start as soon as possible, of course, but it will take years to see the effect probably. So sometimes it's hard to to, to push um, uh, some policies because you don't see any eff uh, direct effect, but you still need to continue with that anyway. And the problem that, uh, for instance, I face is uh, creating a team of people that work in, in, in quantum Spain, for instance. Of course, I don't decide everybody that works in quantum Spain, only the ones that, uh, that work at BSC related with this project. But anyway, there are no candidates that are from other diversity backgrounds. So there are many, very, very few of them. And it's really hard to find them. But in some cases, they exist. In some cases, they don't feel maybe uh, safe in this environment. So I'm not sure about that. And that's the, that's the point that we need to, to, to understand. And as a woman in science, I can see, um, so I never have faced any, any problem, at least not uh, obvious, not in an obvious manner, uh, by the fact that I'm a woman working in a field dominated by, by men. But I can see that sometimes it could be hard because I go into many meetings. I am the only woman there. And 
because I'm I'm happy with my job and I'm I mean I'm everybody's very friendly and and also always treat me with a lot of respect so I never have any inconvenience with that but I can see that it's it, it seems like this field is uh, aggressive towards diversity because if it's time that I go to a meeting I'm the only one from a different you know uh, that is not a white man basically I can understand that other people that feel more constrained or that feel uh, not so uh, comfortable with that, they withdraw and they say, okay, I don't want to be here because I don't feel safe. I don't see that I'm welcome because I'm always the only one. And it's hard, but uh, someone, um, so I think we, the ones that we arrive here, we need to stay, even though it could be hard or at least make our, uh, the biggest of our effort, although it's also sometimes unfair for us, but to stay so everybody, uh, in case someone else enters, they see you and they see there is at least someone different. So they can attract other ones and, and so on and so forth. But anyway, nothing of that will work if we don't change our minds from, you know, from previous steps in education. So if physics degrees are still uh, uh, underrepresented, if uh, not, not even a university, even before that, if in high school, uh, all the, all girls don't, don't, girls don't want to do technology because they feel that they don't, uh, they are not good enough for that and so on and so on and so forth. It will be really hard to, you know, to arrive to this level and see some diversity. So it's something that we need to address uh, as a society. And in my case, in uh, in the project that I'm coordinating, uh, the, the effort that we are doing is, of course, making a lot of visibility as much as we can of people of different backgrounds from our backgrounds and also personalities and, and ways of living, etc., from our field, just to show that we are humans and we are diverse and we are welcoming anybody that wants to come to our to our project. And something very simple sometimes that you can do is things like uh, making some uh, code of conduct in uh, our internal chats, for instance, or each time that we organize a co uh, congress or a workshop, things like that, that are very small and probably, I mean, nothing will happen. So why you will do that, something like that? It's just to show that this will be a safe space to everybody that wants to join this effort now or in the future. So I think these small things are also important in the short term, but definitely the long term, we need to address that as a society. So That's really encouraging to hear. And I think, as you say, making these small gestures, they, they cost nothing, right? They're very, exactly. they're very simple and easy. And if they communicate to people that, that they are welcome, that everyone is valued, then that seems like, it seems like a huge win for very little cost. So why not, why not at least do that? And then also, as you say, there are many other stages in the, in the career pipeline where, where there are problems. But as you say, if, if you have a workforce from a bunch of diverse backgrounds, at least making sure that they are happy and comfortable and feel safe and valued enough to continue working in the field, that seems like a, a very valuable goal. Exactly. Sometimes it's not only about the diversity itself of your team, but also just to show that this will be a safer space because it's if your team is apparently diverse, but then uh, people are not comfortable, then it's not diverse at all, of course. So that's also very important. Yeah, definitely. Okay, one final question to wrap up with then. If you could go back in time and give yourself just one piece of advice, what would it be? Hmm... Keep calm, like we said, because I get stressed very easily sometimes because I want to do everything quickly. Like, yeah, I want to solve things as soon as possible because, of course, I'm excited to do all these things. But sometimes things take time, especially if you want to do them properly. 
So it's better that you stop, uh, take some breath and do the whatever you have to do step by step, even if that means that it will take a long time because it's more important to make things properly than make them quickly. So I would say that like, uh, Alba, don't worry, just keep take a breath. It will work out. You just need more time to do it. So it's fine. <laughs> that sounds like a really great piece of advice and a good way to finish this off. Okay, so... If our audience would like to learn a little bit more about you, is there anywhere that they could find you, for example, on the internet or on social media, anywhere like that? Yes, I'm using Twitter quite often. So my handle is Alba C. Lierta. And uh, also uh, you can send me an email anytime you want. I mean, I'm happy to answer all emails. And uh, my um, my email address is in at bsc's, uh, .es, um webpage. So you can find me also easily. And of course, uh, regarding Quantum Spin Project, we also have a website in English and Spanish. So there is also a contact form from anybody that wants to learn more about this project. Okay, perfect. We'll make sure to leave some links to those on our own website and wherever we distribute this podcast. So thank you very much, Dr. Albert Tevera-Lierta, for your time here today. Thank you, Stephen. It was a pleasure to be here. And I hope that you enjoyed as much as me this, this podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. It was fantastic talking with you. Uh, thank you also to the Unitary Fund for supporting this podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider liking, sharing and subscribing wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. It really helps us to get our guest stories out to as wide an audience as possible. I hope you join us again for our next episode. And until then, this has been Inside Quantum. I've been Dr. Stephen Thompson. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Okay,